Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 55 of The Five By, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. In today's episode, Meeple Lady cultivates a bamboo garden to feed a ravenously hungry panda in Takanoko. I try to sort puzzly pictures in Illusion, while Catherine runs a car factory in Kanban. Mason gets all tricky in Oh Hell. But first, Sarah grows a tree in Kodama Duo. I play a lot of two-player games. So many that whether a game is good at two is one of the most important factors in whether I buy it. Now, a lot of games say two to four or two to five on the box, but aren't that good at two. I've had my share of disappointments, games I bought because I played them in a larger group and loved them, but at home with our regular two players, they fell a bit flat. That's how I felt about Kodama the Tree Spirits, published in 2016 by Action Phase Games, and previously reviewed way back in episode seven of the Five By. Loved it with four or five players, but with two, not so much. So I was thrilled by Action Phase's follow-up game Kodama Duo, a two-player version of Kodama. The BGG page says it was published in 2018, and I believe most Kickstarter backers did get their copies in December, so that's technically true? I got mine right before Christmas, so sure, 2018. Whatever the date, Kodama Duo was designed by Daniel Solis, designer of the original Kodama, along with Nick Little. Like Kodama, Kodama Duo is a card game about placing tree branches to build a tree that will make the Kodama spirits happy. Now, it's impossible to review Kodama Duo without talking about the original Kodama, but I won't go into too much detail about the previous game. Instead, I encourage you to go back to episode 7 of the 5 by and listen to Stephanie Stone Rob's excellent review of Kodama. Kodama Duo adds a couple of new mechanisms, and the best, I think, changes the way branch cards are drawn. The original Kodama has you simply drafting from a pool of four available cards, which for me was the biggest problem with two players. With four or five people, this can be tense. The card you really want is likely to be chosen by someone else before it gets back around to you. But drawing cards like that with only two players, there just isn't enough competition. It's not hard to figure out what your opponent is going for, and just make sure you're going for something else. Kodama Duo solves this problem by adding I split you choose to the card draws. Each turn, three cards are drawn. One player splits them into two groups, a pair and a single card, and the other player gets first pick. Whoever takes the pair plays one and discards the other, while the player who took the single card gets to claim a spirit token. This is the other addition to Kodama Duo, a set of cardboard tokens that look like the symbols on the branch cards, firefly, cloud, flower, etc. When you claim a spirit token, you can use it to cover the symbol on any card in your tree, effectively changing that symbol for scoring purposes. At first, you claim spirit tokens from the supply, but there are only six tokens, one for each of the six symbols. So pretty quickly, claiming a spirit token means taking it from your opponent's tree or from your own. This can add a bit of take that, although it hasn't ever felt that way in our games. I think it must depend on the players. I find that claiming a spirit token from my own tree is often more useful. This is the only way to move a spirit token once it's on your tree, and it can be good to get the token off a branch you're not building anymore. The addition of I Split You Choose gives Kodama Duo the tension that was lacking in two-player original Kodama. Every turn, one of the players has to think about what their opponent is going to do, and try to divide the cards to make sure their opponent won't take the card they want. And being the choosing player can be tense as well. I've had turns where I really needed a spirit token for my end-of-round goal, but the way my opponent had divided the cards, the single card was no good for me. Do I take the pair and get more points this turn? Or do I give up the short-term points and take the single card because that lets me get a spirit token, which helps my long-term goal? 
Kodama Duo is full of interesting decisions like this. One mechanism that doesn't change is that Kodama Duo has Kodama cards, with goals you score at the end of each round. And this brings me to my only real criticism of Kodama Duo. We've found the Kodama cards unbalanced to a degree that can make games feel unfair. I've had games where I won by a landslide, not because I played better, but because I drew four great Kodama cards and my opponent didn't. It's no fun to know you're going to lose a game no matter what you do, just because the other player has more opportunity to score bonus points. We've added a house rule, where at the start of the game we each draw six Kodama cards and discard two, to try and mitigate this. Kodama Duo's art, by Quan Chai Moria, is just as beautiful and magical as in original Kodama. Both Kodama and Kodama Duo are wonderful ways to introduce people to games. I've shown photos of a finished Kodama tree to non-gamers, and they gasp. Even if they have no interest in games, they say, what is that? And they want to do it too. The theme is so engaging and so easy to grasp. You're building a tree. Playing Kodama and Kodama Duo just makes people feel good. One final bit of praise for Kodama Duo, it gets rid of the very confusing abacus-style scoreboard used in original Kodama and replaces it with an ordinary score track. I just found out that the second edition of Kodama also includes this new score track, so this improvement is not unique to Kodama Duo. I'm still grateful for it. In every game of Kodama, at least once, someone would get confused and be unsure if they'd scored their turn correctly. That original scoreboard was a definite impediment, and I'm very glad they changed it. And that's Kodama Duo. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not collecting fireflies in my tree, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. There's a trajectory that happens to most veteran board gamers. They get into the hobby through a gateway game or two, play the heck out of them, and then move on to more challenging games, or games that are better suited to their new likes and desires, based upon diving headfirst into the hobby and learning about all the thousands and thousands of games out there. Sometimes gamers return to those gateway games, but more often than not, those games just sit on your shelf out of nostalgia, unplayed, a reminder of how you first got into the hobby. Takenoko was one of those games I learned early on in the hobby, but unlike those other gateway games that sit on my shelf collecting dust, this is one game I would hands down always play on any given day. Published in 2011, Takenoko is a 2-4 player game from Antoine Bauza, published by Bombex and Matago. It is a family game that plays in about 45 minutes that's set in a bamboo garden in ancient Japan. But really, there's only one thing that you really need to know about this game. It has a ridiculously cute and adorable panda, one that is constantly munching on bamboo when he gets a little stressed out. The bamboo, which stacks on the board, is equally adorable in pink, green, and yellow. And there's a little frustrated gardener figurine who is endlessly trying to keep his bamboo garden growing. The components in this game are by far the best I've ever seen. The entire game is cheery and colorful, and even the rulebook is wonderfully drawn like a comic book. The backstory goes like this. The Japanese emperor has entrusted his court members, the players, with the difficult task of caring for a panda by setting up their bamboo garden. The player who grows the most bamboo, managing their land plots best, while feeding the delicate panda, will win the game. The game is objective-based, and the player with the most victory points at the end wins. The first round of the game skips determining the weather conditions, which is present on future rounds. I particularly like this as it eases players into the rhythm of the game. On a player's turn, they must take two different actions. Players can either draw three plots, pick one, and place it on the table, take an irrigation channel, move the gardener in a straight line in any direction and where he stops, grow bamboo if the plot is irrigated, 
move the panda in a straight line in any direction and where he stops, eat a piece of bamboo, or lastly draw an objective card, minding the hand limit of five cards in your hand. Bamboo can only grow on irrigated plots, so either the plot must be touching the special pond tile at the center of the table, or water must be connected from the pond tile using irrigation channels. This is very important for scoring objectives, which I'll explain later. Bamboo can only grow up to four pieces high on a plot. After everyone takes their first turn, determining the weather phase is done before each person's turn. To do this, before your actions, you roll the weather die. If a sun shows up, you can take three different actions. If rain shows up, grow bamboo on any irrigated plot of your choice. The wind allows you to take two of the same exact actions if you'd like. The lightning bolt scares the panda, and he moves anywhere to eat a piece of bamboo. The cloud allows you to take an improvement chip from the reserve. And finally, the question mark allows a player to pick one of the five previously mentioned conditions. An improvement chip comes in three types, an enclosure, which protects that plot from being eaten by the panda, fertilizer, which increases the amount of bamboo that grows on it whenever bamboo grows, and the watershed, which immediately makes a plot irrigated. These chips can only be placed on plots that have not grown bamboo yet. The whole point of the game is to score objective cards, which players receive one of each type at the start of the game. There are three types of cards, plot, gardener, and panda objectives. If you grab a panda objective, you need to be able to eat the specific types of bamboo pieces to score it. To score a gardener objective, the exact color and number of bamboo must be growing on three to four plot sections, with or without a specific improvement chip, depending on the image depicted on the card. Lastly, to score a plot objective, the configuration of the plots on the board must exactly match what's on the card, and they must all be irrigated. Do not forget about this. This is what most new players forget when they try to score their objectives. Gameplay continues until one person reveals their 7th, 8th, or 9th completed objective card, depending on the player count. That person gets the Emperor card, which is worth 2 points, and everyone else has one last turn. The person with the most VPs wins the game. In the case of a tie, the player who scored the most points on panned objective cards wins the game. If there is a second tie, players share the victory. The game is excellent at all player counts, and is just so delightful to get on the table. It's one of my absolute favorite games, and you all know me as a heavy Eurogamer. There is even an expensive collector's edition version available, which comes in a very large wooden box and a ginormous panda, which I believe is worth every single penny. And that's Takenoko, and this is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Back in February 2015, a photo of a dress went viral when some people saw it as gold with white stripes and others saw it as black with blue stripes. I was team gold all the way. And if you've never seen a picture of the dress, you might want to pause here because, spoiler alert, I was wrong. According to science people, Team Gold brains interpreted the blue tones in the dress as a shadow and tried to autocorrect for it like a color filter in our brains. I remember staring at that photo trying to force my brain to see blue and black. And although I wasn't successful, it was fun to battle against my own perceptions. And I get that same feeling whenever I play Illusion. Originally published by NSV in 2018, Illusion is a two-to-five player card game with artwork by Oliver Freudenreich and Sandra Freudenreich. I should mention that the copy I have is the one published by NSV, but if you live in North America, the publisher here is Pandasaurus Games. So the game's designer is Wolfgang Varsh, and if that name sounds familiar to you, it's probably because Varsh has been putting out the hits over the past year with games like The Mind, Ganshan Clever, and Quacks of Quedlinburg. 
In Illusion, players take turns arranging cards into a row in order of more or less of a particular color. The four possible colors are red, yellow, green, and blue, and each card has a unique image made up of those four colors plus a white background. But you'll only need to sort by one of those colors each round, so it must be super easy, right? Except that the images are also optical illusions. So here's how it works. At the beginning of each round, you flip over the top card in the arrow deck. The color of the arrow tells you whether to sort the cards by red, yellow, blue, or green, and the direction it's pointing indicates ascending order. At the beginning of your turn, you take the top card from the illusion deck and place it anywhere in the row. If one of your opponents thinks the row is out of order, they can challenge it, and everyone loves a challenge in this game. On the back of each illusion card is an answer key that lists the percentage of each color on that card. For example, red 8%, blue 21%, etc. So when there's a challenge, everyone is joining in and flipping over the cards all at once to see how well the group did. Now, if any card in the row is out of order, not just the last one played, the person who raised the challenge collects the arrow card. Otherwise, the person who played the last card collects it. Then you clear the row, draw a new arrow card, and start a new round. The first player to collect three arrow cards wins the game. Illusion is simple, but not easy. There are so many design choices I appreciate about this game. First, there's almost no setup time. You shuffle two decks of cards, flip over an arrow card, and then place the top card from the Illusion deck onto the table to start a row. That's it. Also, there's no downtime. When it's someone else's turn, you're trying just as hard as they are to figure out where that card should go. And difficult cards are a shared agony. While your opponent is waffling back and forth about where to place that eye-twisting image, you're doing the exact same thing in your head. And when they finally let go of the card, you have to decide just how confident you are about your own opinion. As a group, you're squinting and groaning and laughing together. And as the row gets longer, things get more interesting. You all start eyeballing each other, knowing there's a good chance that at least one of the cards is wrong. Should you say something now, or wait for another card or two to increase your odds? But if you wait, someone else can beat you to it. Maybe you decide to go for it, and once the cards are all flipped, you realize that every single one of them is correct. But a weird thing happens. Instead of being disappointed that someone else gets the arrow, you're shocked and kind of proud that the group managed to get 12 cards on the table without making a single mistake. And that's the beauty of the game. Even though Illusion has winners and losers, that never feels like the point of playing. You'll keep an eye on how many arrows your opponents have and factor that into your decision whether to make a challenge, but mostly, the arrows feel like a timer mechanism that lets you know when the game is over. And challenges aren't confrontational. They're fun. When someone challenges your last move, that gives you a chance to collect an arrow. Plus, you're just as curious as everyone else whether all the cards are in the right order. The real tension in this game comes from you battling against yourself. Just like with that photo of the blue and black dress, when I play Illusion, I'm trying to see what's actually there and not the story my brain is busy constructing. So that tiny bit of red circle peeking out from the back, it doesn't matter that it's covered by a bunch of other shapes. My brain knows it's there and keeps telling me that the circle is very big, which must mean lots of red, even though the color barely appears on the card. Speaking of red, the one drawback of Illusion is the choice of colors. I haven't played it with anyone who's colorblind, but based on some research I was able to find online, the hue of red and green used on the cards can be problematic for people with red-green colorblindness. Also, there's not much contrast between the green and blue. I have to play it in a well-lit room or I have a hard time telling them apart. Now for the big questions. Should you play this game? Absolutely, without a doubt. Should you buy it? I don't know. I want to say yes because Illusion is such a clever and well-designed game. It works well for all player counts and it's a snap to teach. So what's with the hesitation? Well, whenever I teach it to people, they get really into it, have a good time, and want to play two or three games in a row. Then that's it. The novelty wears off and they move on. 
So even though the game design offers a lot of replayability, it's not something people tend to revisit. On the other hand, it's one of my go-to games when I'm playing with a new group of people, especially if there are less experienced players in the mix. You can pick up a copy of Illusion for about 15 US dollars, and it only takes up about as much space as two decks of playing cards stacked side by side. So if you're like me, if you enjoy introducing people to the hobby and you keep a stash of lightweight and portable games that are easy to teach to anyone and have a broad appeal, Illusion is a solid game to have in your collection. And that's all I got. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can chat with me on Twitter at Laura Wrote It. Hashtag Team Gold. Stronghold Games just reprinted Kanban for the first time since its initial release in fall 2014 with new updated car meeples and the same complex interacting mechanisms that we know and love. As my game of the year from 2014, it is a joy to finally get to talk about this ode to car manufacturing by the amazing designer Vital Lacerda. 2014 was a stellar year for games in the Harmon household. We brought Lagrania, Arkwright, and Orleans over from Germany, enjoying each of these amazing games a few months before their North American release. But when we played Kanban in December, it was love at first sight. And wow, what a sight. At first glance, many gamers may express fear of the intricate game board factory and its complex illustrations, piles of tiles, cards, and components. After taking a tour of the virtual facility, gamers will find a system of play as efficient as the assembly line itself. It all starts with the corridor, dividing the game board in two, surrounded by five different departments crucial to factory operations. Each player is depicted via Meeple, who seems to constantly work. There are multiple spots in the corridor pertaining to each department. Each round, following the corridor from left to right, you simply pick yourself up and choose a new department spot to work in. Once everyone's spots are chosen, you move left to right again, activating those spots and lying your figure back down. The elegance and simplicity of this process cannot be overstated. Because of this, Kanban, in spite of being a deep game full of interdependent mechanisms, is fairly simple to play. There are scorings that interrupt this flow at odd times, but even they are triggered using components and graphic design in an obvious and thematic way. Each department in Kanban controls a different part of the car-making process, and even though there is a bit of a mini-game feel to each action, they interrelate and impact each other in interesting ways. Each department is thematic, from drafting car designs to parts procurement to design upgrade and testing to manufacturing itself. Finally, there is the never-ending process of certification as an alternate action you can take. The decision of whether to spend your shifts certifying or completing work is deliciously tense and has big ramifications for your short and long-term success. Certification allows new abilities to unlock, gives important bonuses, and allows you to speak earlier at board meetings. Marching through this corridor with your workers is your boss, Sandra. She's symbolized by a smart pink meeple that lands in each department in order, changing that department in some way, and potentially hampering and helping you in much the same way the arrival of your boss at your real work would. Sandra checks to see who has certified in that department, and then either rewards or punishes depending on whether you're playing the nice Sandra or mean Sandra variant. My husband Sam and I always play the mean Sandra variant, though we like both. Sandra's movements can be impacted by worker placement, sometimes skipping locations due to a worker bottleneck. When you don't see this coming, it can have a major impact on the game, creating a cooperative competitive element that either slows or quickens the game. Either way, when Sandra gets back to her desk, she rewards productive players with a simple end-of-the-week scoring. The other big mid-game scorings are board meetings. When enough test cars have been claimed, a board meeting is triggered. Each player has multiple chairs around the boardroom, which you must earn during play. You can't speak much if you haven't earned the right to do so. And on the table is the meeting's agenda, which is manifested as cards with scoring options. Players will take turns speaking to Sandra about their accomplishments, 
earning many points for doing so. Multiple employees can speak about the same subject, but Sandra is less impressed hearing something talked about twice, which means less points. You can play a very targeted game where you focus on each meeting's goal and build to those goals, or you can look at the board and figure out how to efficiently outcreate your opponents, find the efficiencies, and exploit them. Many fans of Vital Lacerda Games are also fans of the lavish Kickstarter backed Eagle Griffin Big Box publishings of games like The Gallerist and Lisboa. The components, and particularly the art and graphic design of Ian O'Toole, make these editions a memorable play experience, even drool worthy. I suppose the one drawback of Kanban is that we gamers in our quest to have it all wish that Kanban was published this way, touched by the golden hand of O'Toole. If you put aside what might be in the future, the current driver's edition printing of Kanban is colorful, immersive, with quality components and great graphic design. In the tradition of Vitala Surge's design style, actions you take in Kanban are fairly simple. It is the ramifications of those decisions that will impact your ability to successfully accomplish your goal in the game. Kanban requires that you plan ahead and think about what goals you might accomplish. It is a masterwork at all player counts, and I highly recommend it. Being a member of the 5 by community is mighty special and something that I don't take for granted. Thank you for listening. You can find me at Kybrarian on Twitter or Cat Library on BGG. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Oh Hell. As you well know, if you've listened to previous segments of mine, I love trick-taking games. I covered German Whist back in episode 47, and I went into some depth about the history of trick-takers there if you'd like some more background. I'm always looking to learn new traditional card games, both trick-takers I've not played, and brand new games I've never heard of before. Most traditional card games are what we refer to as folk games. That is, they're usually not a single set of standardized or published rules, but rather a regional or cultural variance from a central stem of gameplay. Often when we discuss folk tales, folk music, or folk games, we don't really think of them in a contemporary context, and I think that's to our detriment. It's unfortunate that the modern gamer uh, often views traditional French deck card games as somehow inferior or boring or simply less strategic than a brand new designer game they'd go buy. There's a pernicious tendency amongst people at any point in history to think of the people who came before them as less sophisticated than themselves and their contemporaries, and they very often hold their predecessors' entertainment in that same low regard. Now, of course, games come in and out of fashion, and a cursory view at the historical landscape might make it appear that my grandparents' generation only played Gen, Canasta, and Bridge. But there's a certain amount of survivor bias from the cultural artifacts of that generation's card gaming. The books and ephemera relating to those few most popular games disproportionately remind us of them when we think about games of the past. The reality is, of course, that people have been playing thousands of different card games for well over 500 years, many of which are incredibly challenging and deep. There are stubs of stubs of variants of rule sets of these thousands of games, and the organic evolution of them over time has led to new and totally distinct folk games. Folk games are usually taught by someone who knows the game well, often through close familial ties. Millions of players around the world have never even read the rules to Gin Rummy or Hearts or Spades. Over this past holiday, I went looking for a trick-taking game the family could play, since there are usually five of us that get together. When it's just four, we often play dominoes or hearts, but neither of those is really enjoyable at five. In perusing my many books on card games, I was reminded that Oh Hell plays 3-7, to seven, is a bidding trick-taker, and has a lot in common with other games everyone already knew well. Oh Hell popped up in the late 1930s, and while there are dozens of variants, I chose a very straightforward American rule set to learn and teach. Five-player Oh Hell lasts 19 rounds. Uh, this is easy to track because the first hand is a 10-card deal with two left over, the face-up card, and the whole card. Each hand, the last card after the deal is flipped face-up and becomes the trump card for the round. The second hand is a nine-card deal, the third hand is an eight-card deal, and so on, down to just one card per player, 
then back up again until the final hand when everyone has 10 cards. OL hands play out like any other simple trick-taking game, but you don't really win by taking tricks. You win OHEL by bidding correctly. Unlike spades, you're not just trying to make your bid, and there are no partners. In OHEL, you're trying to make your bid exactly. So if you bid that you'll win 3 tricks, you get your 3 points, plus 10 points for making your bid. But if you bid 3 and win 4, you only get the 4 points. Bid 3 and only take 2, you only get 2 points. Unlike some other bidding games, there's no penalty for not making your bid, but there's no way you're going to win if you don't make all your bids. Going nil, or for our listeners who aren't card game players, bidding that you will win 0 tricks, is extra interesting, I think, in hell. If you successfully go nil, you get 5 points plus the number of cards dealt in the hand. So if you can go nil in the first round, you shouldn't. I mean, I guess you could try it, but it's incredibly unlikely. You can get 15 points, which is a lot of points in hell. Bidding order matters a lot here, as the dealer's the last to bid, which would be great since you know what everyone else has already bid, except there's the hook. To quote directly from Paget, The dealer may not bid the number that would cause the total number of tricks bid to equal the number of tricks available. In practice, that means that the dealer almost always has to overbid or underbid, unless someone before them has accidentally over or underbid. There's a lot of metagame in Ohel because it relies on a player's ability to judge the cards in their hand, their seat position from the dealer, and the bidding of other players. So if you're playing with me, you know that I'm a coward and I'm going to bid very conservatively. Thus, if I say I can take half the tricks in a round, I'm probably holding a ton of high cards or I'm really long on the trump suit. Final scores in a 5-player game usually range somewhere between 100 and 200. If you've scored under 100 points after 19 rounds, you're probably really bad at hell. Now, my favorite part of this lovely trick-taking game is how often people at the table, well, I mean, me anyway, actually say, oh hell, when they're forced to take a trick they don't want. This happens a lot. I would strongly recommend printing out one of the many score sheets available for free online. The scorekeeper in Ohel does quite a bit of work, and having a good form really helps. Ohel was a huge hit with our family, including our grandmother, who's pushing 90 but still tack sharp at card games. So, who should play Ohel? People who love spades. People who love hearts. People who love rules-light bidding games with massive replayability. People looking for a 7-player card game. And people who are bad at trick-taking partners but love to play anyway. I give Ohel 19 out of 19 rivet scrapes from a green Samsonite card table. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DiscountCompost. Thanks for listening to The 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.